Welcome to the View from the Penalty Box podcast with Cam Connor. Classic hockey stories from one of hockey's toughest enforcers. Hello, everyone. Welcome to podcast number seven. I'm Cam Connor with my son, Chris Connor. So, welcome back after a week break, and we have a little bit of a confession. So, it was Canadian Thanksgiving, and I think we're still full from all the food that we ate. But uh, we we actually did start recording a podcast, and about 10 minutes into the podcast, we start hearing like a, like a shower noise, like water coming out. And water started pouring out of the ceiling. So, uh, <laughs> We have to stop the podcast immediately, and it looks like the pipes were full from the Thanksgiving dinner, and it clogged it up, and there was a flood. So I guess that's the good thing about podcasting is you got to see the water coming out right away and catch it. Right, Dad? All right, there was a crack, and there was there was a few things wrong. So the next two days, I brought in some friends of mine, and we got her fixed. Now I'm just doing the mudding and the taping and the repairs, and hope that doesn't happen for another 25 years. But it would have been funny if we were actually uh, had video for recording this to see our face in the middle of your story when the water started pouring down. But but we caught it. So. One of the things that we mentioned that we will definitely mention now is that we're excited that we hit number one in sports for Canadian iTunes. We're doing good in the States as well, but um, that's a pretty great accomplishment. Well, thank you very much, Chris. Well, it's not me. It's all the it's all the fans listening and the people that like classic hockey stories. And we haven't asked for reviews yet, but I know that's important. So if you listen on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen... If you could review our podcast, give us some stars, we would really appreciate that, and we'll keep the stories coming. All right. So today's episode is on your time with the New York Rangers, and you'll also talk about the farm team a little bit, and what it was like to be traded to New York. I know compared to Montreal, where you were there a shorter time, but when you win the cup, those stories are pretty amazing and once-in-a-lifetime stories. Well, that's correct, Chris. You know, with Montreal, you're with the guys every single day, whether you're dressing or not. You're part of that team, and uh, you can't help but come up with stories. With the Rangers, you know, that 79-80 season, uh, I end up going to New York for about 12 games. Then I uh, punched a guy in the head and broke my hand, and so I was out for the playoffs. Got cut after, you know, 15, 20 games into the season, so... I don't, I don't have as much to say as what I did with Montreal, but I got some interesting stories for sure. And from our personal life, that's where we spent a good 10 years, where I grew up, um, and you met a lot of interesting people. So before you talk about the Rangers, why don't you talk about uh, meeting Madonna? I know it's not a long story, no. but it's quite interesting well, to meet someone of her stature back when she was maybe almost at the peak of her fame. Well, that's true, too. There was a guy named John Goldstein who... Uh, his father-in-law was a big CEO with one of the record companies, I think one of the labels that Madonna worked for. And we were just walking down one of the streets in Manhattan, and he looked across the street, John, and goes, oh, there's Madonna. I should call her over. And I'm thinking, yeah, right. And sure enough, he yells across the street in all the traffic, and she looks, and she sees John, and she actually 
didn't go across the crosswalk. She ran straight across the street, give John a big hug. And so John introduced me. We shook hands. And I'm sure she doesn't know who I am to this day. But I can say I got to meet her. So what was your impression of her? Well, you know, she's a bubbly, good-looking lady. And uh, she's got a personality. So, you know, that short little five minutes was, uh, you know, my impression was she's a bubbly woman and she can sing and she's got the personality to boot. She has a lot of confidence, that's for sure. And was she tiny? You always hear that when you meet stars that they're a lot smaller than you would have thought. Well, I would say that uh, I never walked away with that impression and that was many years ago. So I would say no. Though The other celebrity that, well, I I got to know a few, but the first one that comes to mind was uh, Cher. I remember going through a metal detector, a couple of things. I don't know how I got on this topic, but we're, we're going through metal. It's interesting. We're going through metal detectors with a hockey team in L.A. Again, you know, back then you could beat the systems and they weren't nearly as security tight as they are today. When I lived in Phoenix, I have this silver bracelet um, with turquoise on it. It's actually pretty sharp that I would wear, as people in Phoenix do wear. And uh, I know that it was going to ring going through because I didn't, I didn't put it on the conveyor belt. And so I said, oh, what am I going to do with this? And then I looked and there was a guy ahead of me that had a jacket on with a belt around the jacket. So I took my bracelet off and I just hooked it on the back of his jacket. When he went through, I mean, he was from behind. And then I see Cher on the other side and she was dating Greg Allman or married to him at the time. And then I said... Oh, if she's there, I bet, yeah, sure enough, the guy I put the bracelet on the back of his jacket was Greg Allman. But uh, my impression, impression of Cher is she was one thin lady, that is for sure. I mean, she could sing and she was good looking, but you asked me if Madonna was tiny. I didn't think so, but I can say Cher was skinny. So did he ask you why your bracelet was on his jacket? No, I kind of followed him right through the metal detectors and grabbed it off him. And it did ring, and he had to go back, but I got through it. I got my bracelet, and uh, he never figured it out. Okay, so when you went to the Rangers, you were playing for the Edmonton Oilers, and that's another podcast ep- or episode that we'll talk about on this podcast. So you were playing for the Rangers, and you got traded. So why don't you talk a little bit about that? Well, we'll, uh, we'll just start in the... It, you know, with the Oilers, we were on the road for about, I'm going to say, two weeks. This is before, like the Oilers and all the NHL teams now, they've got their own charters and uh, very few flights they're going to get on commercial. But back in our day with Edmonton, every flight was commercial. So it's a long two weeks when you're on the road. It was our last game, I believe, it was, well, it was in Montreal. We were in the dressing room, and it was the last day of the trade deadline. So we're on the road. The trade deadline is 12 noon on whatever date it is. And so we're sitting in the dressing room, and it's 10 minutes before 12. We've got the radio on. i got a bucket of pucks fully dressed in my other gear. And I'm going to go on the ice about 10 minutes early and shoot some pucks before the guys get out there. And just as I was going to leave the dressing room, the sports came on, and they said, oh, we got all the latest scoops today on who got traded. And so I remember telling the boys, hey, let's get the scoops. Be quiet here. So we're all listening, and the first thing they said was, today Cam Connor traded for Don Murdoch. You know, that caught me flat-footed. I don't know anybody that ever heard on the radio they got traded. Um, so Semenko told me, he said that my jaw, 
started laughing because my jaw just dropped. Uh, it was a shock. And and didn't you tell? Didn't you have a conversation with Glenn Sather a couple days before that? Well, that's true, Chris. Uh, we had played in in uh, Philadelphia, and uh, we actually took a bus back from Philly to New York City. And I was sitting with Glenn Sather, and as we get into New York City with a team bus, you know, New York City is, uh, it's exciting. So I was sitting next to the window, just observing. And it looked like uh, all the people were in a hurry, even if they weren't late. There was so many people walking the streets. And, you know, I kind of compared it to being an ant in an ant colony. Growing up in Winnipeg, I'm just not used to something, some environment being that busy. So... I remember, and, and it was dirty back then. I know it's cleaned up quite a bit. And I remember saying to Glenn, who was, again, sitting beside me on the bus, I said, Glenn, if you ever trade me, please don't trade me here. Which, you know, that's where I ended up getting traded. And in the dressing room, the way it works right now is is if you're a star, like a Lafleur or a Gretzky or a Gordie Howe, you can miss a day or two of skating. Put your skates back on. And your timing is still there. It doesn't even look like you missed any time off off your skates or off the ice. Whereas the average hockey player in the NHL, if you if you miss a day of skating, it takes one whole day of skating to get your timing back. So when we're given optionals, we found that if we even went on the ice for 20 minutes during an optional, didn't even have to wear your equipment. Just being on the ice, you didn't lose your timing. So when I heard on the radio, uh, you know, I got traded. Well, I got all my gear on, my skates, and I just said, well, okay, I'll, uh, I guess I'm out of here. I'll finish uh, this skate with you guys, then I'll, I'll leave. And the trainers, they said, nope, you're not on this effing team anymore. Get your gear off and out you go. And I almost wanted to cry, thinking 30 seconds ago, I was like everybody's teammate. So, they, you know, they... I took my gear off, said goodbye to the guys. They went on the ice for practice. Carry whatever sticks that I had left. Give you your equipment bag with all your equipment. Went back to the hotel, got my suitcase, got in the cab, and uh, took a fly a flight out from Montreal to LaGuardia Airport in New York. And I remember the trainer was there at the other end to pick me up, and he dropped me off at the hotel. And okay, when I got to my room, room, I I phoned my wife and I said I got traded. And, Charlotte said, really? Where'd you get traded to? And I said, well, guess. So she named all the nice cities she'd like to live in. And I had, nope, nope, nope. And I think she got a little prejudiced about New York based upon what I told her my observations were. So I said, no, no, nap New York. And she went, New York. Now, having said what I did, I want to say this. New York was a blessing. My daughter was born in Greenwich, Connecticut. My son went to some tremendous schools out there. The neighbors were fantastic. Um, I don't have one bad thing to say about New York whatsoever. It was wonderful, and it was a blessing I certainly didn't see coming. And since you're talking about New York, we actually had, it's a little bit off topic, but it goes kind of along with the New York territory. Uh, We had a lot of feedback from your, that one mafia mob story that you had. Yeah, John Gotti. Uh, Yes. So people were asking if you had any other mafia or mob related stories from your time in New York. Most people don't have one, but let's see if you have, let's see if you have another one. Okay. Well, I guess I'll go back to, uh, I'll try to pick up where I left off, which was, you know, just arriving at the hotel room and letting the wife know. So 
Anyways, well, I do have one more mob story. It's when I was with the Rangers, and, you know, I've always been aggressive my whole life. And it's not a necessarily a bad trade or a good trade. I've just been aggressive. And when there's trouble, I don't seem to always want to walk away, which is not really the smart thing to do. So it was after practice in Rye. And I came to a four-way stop in the town of Rye, and uh, I wait for the light, and then I, my light turns green, so I go straight ahead. But a car who was in the other lane on the other side of the street, he has a red, but this guy decided just to go through the lights, and he was going to pull in front of me, and I said, screw that, because he ran the light, and so I went ahead of him. And, you know, about 20 seconds later, we have to pull up to a stop sign together, so he pulls up beside me. And this guy looks like he's in his 30s, and there was an old man in the passenger side. So the passenger window goes down, and the, uh, and the driver leans over with a Brooklyn accent, and he said, and I can't do a Brooklyn accent, but he says something, hey man, you want to get freaking shot in the head? I said, what do you mean? And anyways, he was giving me shit, and I started mocking his accent. He, he said, you want to get shot in the head? I said, yeah, let's see your gun. Never a smart thing to no, say when, when someone says, do you want to get shot so, in the head? So I'm sitting there waiting for this guy at the red light, or at the stop sign. And the old man is just looking at me, and he's not saying a word. And this guy starts reaching under the driver's seat. And then I say to myself, well, that's pretty stupid. You're just sitting there waiting for this guy to pull a gun out? I don't think so. And the old man said to me, son, I would leave right now if I were you. And I said, probably good advice, so I just boogied on down. So, if you don't uh, read any of the mob books, there's always, like, the old bosses the, on the passenger side and their bodyguard or somebody that reports to him is doing the driving. So, to me, that fit a mafia scenario, and I'm glad I drove away when it was time to drive away. Back to your story. So, you yeah. just told mom that you got yeah. traded to New York, and yeah. you can continue that and then yeah. mention who you got traded for. Well, I said on the radio, Chris, that I got traded for Don Murdoch. In the hotel room back in those days, they used to have lights flashing on your, your phone in your room, and I saw my light was flashing, and you phone the front desk, and it says, phone so-and-so, who's also in the hotel, and it's a guy named Andre Bolio, I believe his name was, who was the assistant coach for with Fred Shiro who was the coach of the Rangers. And uh, so I phoned him and he said, well, you know, tomorrow is team pitcher day at Madison Square Gardens and uh, let's drive in together. You'll never find your way into New York City. And I was thankful for that. So we met in the lobby the next day and we're driving into Manhattan and uh, he was telling me, you know, we're making small talk. And he says, you know, Fred Shiro, he's always been after you. Now, Freddie coached the Flyers for a few years before. They won Stanley Cups. They had the Broad Street Bullies. He had aggressive teams every time. And so I knew I fit that kind of pattern. He, he liked the aggressive players and the guys that would show up. And, and again, in my mind, fit the bill pretty good for Freddie. So he's saying, yeah, he's been after you for a long time. And I'm starting to feel pretty good because one team doesn't want you if they get rid of you. But somebody else does want you. So I'm looking at the bright side. And then he says to me, the assistant coach says, so Cam, uh, where do you play, left or right defenseman? Are you left or right defenseman? And I looked at him, and I and he almost went in the ditch when I told him. I said, I'm not a defenseman, I'm a forward. And he goes, what? And he almost went off the road. He said, no, you're joking. I said, I'm a forward. He said, Freddie thinks you're a defenseman. I said, well, I'm a forward. 
So all of a sudden, I'm not feeling as wanted as I once was. We continue on into Madison Square, and they give me my stall and starting to get dressed. So Freddie comes in the dressing room, introduces himself, takes me out in the hallway, and he said, well, listen, Cam, if the reporters ask you, you know, if you, know, if you play defense, tell them you're a forward, but you can play defense also. So <laughs> I said, fair enough, Freddie, fair enough. As I find out many years later, I think where the mix-up was is, you know, Freddie's nickname, and, and, and he's a wonderful man, so it's not a knock on the gentleman. He had a lot of things on his mind, but they would call him Freddie the Fog. I think he got mixed up with Colin Campbell, who was a defenseman on the Oilers, and Cam Connor. So, and it was Colin Campbell phoned me about five or six years ago. He said, I heard that rumor. Is that true? I said, you're damn right. You're the one that's supposed to got traded there, not me. So, interesting how uh, your path in life is paved. So, what was your reception by the New York fans? Well, things like, so, you know, we go out for team pitchers. That's the first day I arrive. And I remember just smiling away in my team pitchers. I don't know, one guy on my team. You know, I'm reading the local papers. And the papers, they had built me up as the big fighter. I was going to kick ass out there and... Nobody was safe when I'm on the ice, and I I never I never have gone out just trying to be a goon. I will not play hockey if that's how they want me to play. Just get out there and fight. And so I wouldn't go and just try to start a fight for something to do. But the fans wanted me. That's how I was built up in the press. I was the big aggressive. In the I remember the headlines said, "Bam is in cam for the post." I think it was. So. The fans, you know, they wanted me to fight, and I wasn't fighting my first few games. So they, they started to boo me, as well as I used to get hate mail in the dressing room because, you know, the girls used to love Don Maloney, or excuse me, uh, Don Murdoch, who um, was a single guy who used to go out quite a bit in Manhattan, and he'd be at all the nightclubs. And he, he did very, very well on the ice. I think he got 40-plus goals his first year as a rookie, and... He would hang around with Ron Duguay, and so they got a lot of publicity. So when he left and I took his spot, I was a married guy, so the girls used to write nasty things about me. Like, what are you doing here playing for the Rangers? We should have Murdoch back. I used to get a lot of that. So finally, you know, that did come to an end. So the the team administration or whoever would actually deliver you the hate mail, <laughs> they didn't look through it well, first? Well, no, they didn't go through it. They just... You know, you just get a pile of mail put in your little mailbox and you open it up and do what you want with it. But i got to say, it didn't hurt my feelings one little bit. They don't know me and, you know, they pay uh, they pay to get in the ring. So if they want to boo me, they want to send me hate mail, it's uh, all part of with paying a price for a ticket. So you mentioned your coach, uh, Fred Shiro. Do you have any stories to uh, discuss about Fred? Well... There's a few things I could talk about Fred, and uh, like one of the things that first comes to mind is Freddie was a man of very few words. He would never go on the ice for any of our practices. I can honestly say I don't even remember one time he puts his skates on. He would show up for five minutes, stand next to the boards during practice, and our assistant coach used to run 100% of the practices, and Freddie would show up and coach Freddie was being interviewed right in front of my stall one day and uh, one of the reporters. And in New York, you probably always get 15, 20 reporters minimum, you know, just from the New York area and the New Jersey area. And so they were all in front of my stall talking to Freddie. And, and one of the reporters in the back said to Freddie, 
Freddie, how do you handle all the pressure that comes at you coaching the Flyers when you were there and now coaching the Rangers? There's, there's a lot of pressure, and you seem so cool. How do you handle it? And Freddie didn't say anything right away, and then he just said, well, I'm like a duck. And that was it. And so the reporters are each looking at each other, and I'm paying attention. I'm kind of interested to hear where this is going. And then after maybe 20 seconds of silence, somebody says, well, Freddie, what does that mean? Freddie took his time and said, well, he said, I'm like a duck. He said, above the water, I'm cool and calm, but below, I'm paddling like hell. And I started laughing, thinking, that's pretty good. Pretty good. So, so you know, when I think, of, I've got a real good one about Freddie. You know, one of the reasons he ended up getting fired, but it's it's uh, it's a true story, but I, I just don't think I should be. Fred's passed now, and so I don't want to say anything because I love the man. He was very, very good to me. So there's a few stories that I do know about Fred that I'll just uh, put on hold for the time being, for sure. So I love playing for Fred Shiro. Again, he was a quiet man, but he had a lot of respect in the dressing room by players and uh, trainers and other management, for sure. And did he end his career with the Rangers? Yes, he did. He ended his career with the Rangers. And, and what actually happened is, Fred was the coach, and there was a GM whose name's not coming to me. Mickey Keating, I think the name was. They let the GM go, and they brought Craig Patrick. And, you know, little did I know that, that when Craig Patrick was brought in, it changed my world. Uh, not for the best. In what way? Well, let me just back up. So with, with Craig Patrick, you know, they just, uh, he was, a, I think, the general manager of the U.S. Olympic team in 1980 that was called the Miracle on Ice, and they weren't better than the Russians or the Czechs, but they ended up winning the Olympics with some small, fast skaters that, you know, played terrific hockey. They won the, the but, you know, they won it, but they couldn't do it again. I could almost wager that. Uh, but they won it, and can't take that away from them. Each player played good hockey. The goalie stopped the puck, and uh, Herb was... Probably the main reason that they won, not not so much the GM, but I would say Herb. So, when Craig came in, didn't take long for him to fire Fred Shiro, and he brought Herb Brooks in. And Herb was a, he had a personality. He was outstanding gentleman. Again, he was the coach of the Olympic championship team in 1980. You know, Herb was one of these guys that when he got into the dressing room, he could motivate you. He, just the tone of his voice, the words that he said. Herb was just a great, great motivator. He worked his players hard, but he was very fair. You know, the little time I did play with Fred, excuse me, with Herb, I thought he was really, really good. And, and he was good to me later when I got brought up as well. So you have an interesting story that mom told me to bring up. I could share it. I know sometimes it gets you choked up. And all she said was, Tony with the short legs. So can you share that no. story? You know, with the Rangers... I put in uh, the year I was traded at the trade deadline, a dozen games. And what happened there is I didn't get to dress for the for the playoffs just because I think the like like the about two weeks before the season was coming to an end, I went to go around this defenseman named Bob Murdoch, and he cross-checked me over the eye, and he caught me for five stitches above the eye and five below the eye. So. I had to go for stitches, and I said, I'm going to get this guy back. So the first time we played him again, I went in the corner, and I was going to hit him hard body check, but for some reason, I just punched him in the head with my glove on, and I broke my freaking hand. 
and that was the end of me for that season with the Rangers. So the next year, um, I, I'd always seen this man around our practice rink in Rye, New York. As the area was called the Playland, where our practice rink was. And there was a little man named Tony. He had, you know, I always think how fortunate I've been in life. I was dealt some pretty good cards. And, uh, you know, I look at a guy like Tony. He was a small Italian man. And he had uh, one leg shorter than the other. And I would say he wore a boot with about a seven-inch platform rubber sole on it to bring his legs up to the same to the same height. And he walked around with his with a short leg and this big boot. And to top it off, I don't know if anybody's going to understand what I'm trying to tell you, but if you were to put your hands out in front of you with your palms down, Tony was born when we would put our hands palms down, his palms would be facing the sky. I don't know if you can figure what I'm trying to say. It sounds like his hands were backwards. Well, that sounds like maybe the best way to explain it. And so he had a he had a few disability problems for sure. But I admired the man so much because for me, I probably would have just hit and collected unemployment, disability, and you wouldn't have saw much about much from me. But this guy, he worked for minimum wage at Playland. His job was to get a wet mop, and he would mop around the boards all the way around the rink. And so I learned from Roddy Piper. I learned from Gordy Howe. Some of these less fortunate people, people just walk by you and ignore you like you're not even there. And that's not the right thing to do, especially for me when, you know, I've been so fortunate to have the kind of life that I had. As I said, learning from other guys, for example, with Gordy, whenever there was little kids on the, you know, at the rinks and they were on the other side of the glass and they'd be looking up with these big eyes. And that's Gordy Howe, because I'm sure the parents had told them about Gordy. Gordy would gather a little bit of snow off the ice and he'd come by and he'd dump it on the kids. And the kids, you know, just to give them a little attention and smile. And so I said, well, I'm going to do that to Tony. So Tony be, you know, mopping by this, by next to the boards. And, and I'd come by and I'd grab some snow and I'd dump it on Tony. And he looked at me the first couple of times as if he thought I was just being mean to him. And I'd smile at him and... And then he, he caught on that it wasn't me trying to be mean. I was just trying to give Tony some attention, and I'd smile. And, and it got to the point where Tony, when he was mopping around the board, you could see him looking up and down, trying to see where Mr. Connor was. And then if he saw me, he'd quickly get away from the boards, and he'd smile. And so over time, I'd always walk in, I'd say hello to Tony and ask him how he's doing. And then uh, I'd see him when we come off after practice around noon hour, he got his lunch break and he'd be sitting in the stands right kind of where we go off and he'd smile at me and I'd talk to him. And one day I said, Tony, what are you eating your lunch out there for? I said, come on in the dressing room. You can sit in my stall. And he said, well, Mr. Connor, that dressing room is only for the Rangers. I said, Tony, you're my guest, buddy. You come in and you sit in my stall. Don't you worry about it. So I would bring Tony in on a regular basis and he would eat his sandwiches in my stall and everybody would go about their day with Tony there and i go get him a Coke or some yogurt or whatever that he wanted, orange juice, and, uh, you know, shower and then see him out when it's all over. And I knew that was good for him, and I'm sure he had a story to tell his wife, and, and I was only too happy to, to do that. 
And then the day came when I got sent to the miners. And it's not a good day. In fact, as it worked out, I was at the rink that morning. Craig Patrick was there. He talked to me. How's it going? Didn't say a word. I get home. Craig Patrick phoned me at home rather than tell me to my face. He phoned me at home and he told me I'm, I'm going to the miners. I cleared waivers and, you know, that uh, that was a changing point in my life. So I had to come back to the rink and pick up my gear. And as I was heading past, Tony was there and Tony said, Mr. Connor, I heard you're not going to be with us anymore. And I said, that's, you know, that's true, Tony. I got sent to the miners. But don't you worry, I said, the other guys, they'll take good care of you. And it broke my heart. He said to me, you know, Mr. Connor, he said, you and Ron Greshner are the only two hockey players that talk to me. He said, everybody else walks by me. And that, that it does today, it still hurts me a lot that, you know, and I use the phrase, the cards we were dealt. All the hockey players were healthy, were making good money, people want your autograph. And this poor man who who could have stayed home, but he's willing to make, make minimum wage. And he brings in his bag lunch every day. I admired that man. And it bothered me that nobody else would even say hello or pay attention to that to Tony. So even today, like I said, after 30 years, it still chokes me up to think that uh, people just walk by a man like that. So that's, that's my story, Chris. Yeah, well, that's... Really interesting, and I guess it's a, a good lesson. So I know growing up, you've mentioned a few of the Rangers that made an impression on you or that you consider friends. So is there any specific Rangers that you have stories about that you'd like to mention? I know, for example, that you reconnected with Tom Laidla recently through Twitter and you had a phone call. So what's your memories of Tom Laidla? Well, Tommy, when he first came in to the organization, Tom is the type of guy who... You know, I hung around with Tom, but I mean, everybody liked Tom. How do you not like somebody that's always uppity, positive, has a smile on their face? He showed up every game on the ice, whether we're playing tough teams or we're playing, you know, not so tough teams. Tom played the same way, and I admired him for that because there's many guys that are tough guys against, you know, teams that are full of Swedes. And then when you played the Broad Street Bullies, where are these guys today? You don't even know they're on the team. They just didn't show up. So Tommy, he showed up and played the same way every game. Didn't matter who we played against. And so I uh, I was very fortunate that we kind of connected and we hung around up until, you know, I, I was phoned by Craig and I was sent to the minors. So I understand that Tommy became a player agent, and I think he did very, very well because, you know, as an agent, that could be a whole new show, but I had an agent who uh, took a lot of money off me. I gave him power of attorney, which was a major mistake, but I was a pretty trusting guy. Tom would be a guy who would be a great agent. He's educated. And the most important thing is, I mean, he played the game and he's honest. To me, honesty is just so, so important. And there's a lot of people in this world, as I found out the hard way, that... Uh, you know they're not consistent with their honesty tom is and so so anyways yeah i think an awful lot of tom laidlaw as a hockey player and more importantly as a person in life so another player you reconnected with through twitter which we'll mention your twitter handle is cam connor nhl is ron dugay so do you have any stories about ron 
Well, Ron was a character. You know, he was a quiet guy, good-looking guy, and, you know, a few things I remember about Ron. He was doing some modeling for Sassoon, I believe it was called. He was single, and so he uh, was pretty well-known in New York City, and the girls, you know, they liked Ron quite a bit. And I know when we do warm-ups the day of a game, you know, we go out for a pre- for for the skate just before the game and we do certain drills where we line up next to the boards, next to the glass, both sides. And so Ron, when he would do the drills, the girls would go so crazy, they'd lean over because he was within arm reach of them and they'd grab him by the hair and they start shaking his head and pulling his hair. They were just so excited about Ron. So after a while, Ron figured it out. He's got to stay about three yards away from the board so the girls couldn't get him. Or start wearing a helmet. Or start wearing a helmet, that is that is for sure. Ron and I also got along well. He uh, was somebody that, uh, you know, he was a good-looking guy. He was a good hockey player. There's been athletes that i played with that are a little bit conceited. Ron, was he had a lot going for him in life, and that's why I liked him. He was pretty down-to-earth, and so that's one of the reasons we hit it off. And I remember we were in Philly one time, just played the Flyers, and Ron and I were the last two out of the dressing room. So he said, what are you doing? I said, I don't know. He said, well, let's go for some beer or something. So we walked out of the old the old Spectrum, I believe it was called. There was a, a limousine all by itself. And as we start walking, this back door of the limousine opens up, and it's a girl, and she's waving. And you kind of hear, Ron, Ron. So anyways, we uh, walked over, and sure enough, it was Cheryl Teague's one of the top models in the world. She was in town and she was friends with Dukes and obviously she liked them. And We jumped in the limousine and we went to a bar and what they did is they sectioned off an area, roped it off and we sat in the middle almost like a zoo animal. So, but you know, with Cheryl Tiggs, she was pretty popular back then and I guess they had to keep her separated from the riffraff, so to speak. So... So Dukes was pretty popular with the ladies, and I don't have anything but good things to say about Ron as well. And speaking of supermodels, I actually have my own story that I talked about in the last episode, but we'll we'll save that till the end. We'll let you keep mentioning uh, your stories. So despite my dad saying at the beginning of this episode that he didn't have that many stories to share, he actually ended up talking for close to an hour and 20 minutes. And so we've had some feedback that the sweet spot of how long an episode should be should be between 30 and 40 minutes so we're going to stop it right now but make sure you turn tune into the next uh part because cam talks about phil esposito don maloney john davidson he thinks of a couple more interesting facts of playing in madison square garden and the new york rangers and what new york was like in the 80s he also talks about the first time ever playing in the minor leagues and how that affected him. He has a hilarious story that he remembered about uh, calling Fred Shiro that I won't spoil. You'll have to hear from him. And he has another interesting story about a fan that actually pulled a gun in the crowd. And the story ends up with whole bunch of people getting handcuffed, including a few hockey players. So thanks for listening. And make sure you tune in next week for part two of the New York Rangers.